Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a new season of the Bulletin Podcast. This is your producer, Hussein Almalla, and here's what's coming up. As I mentioned, even in face of so much evidence, we still don't have a change in direction. One of, I think, the biggest lessons is that you will not be able to do it alone. So I really think that the best way for um, health sectors and countries to move forward and overcome this pandemic is working together. Hello everyone and welcome back to a new episode of the Bulletin Podcast. This is your host Hussein Almalla and I'm joined by... Jesus Ransolo. Hello Jesus. Hi, how are you? I'm happy. I finally got my second shot of the vaccine. Awesome. When did you get that? Around two weeks ago. It, it took our time, always a, fa- a line, but you know, we get to get vaccinated. What was the process like? Was it an easy one? In fact, it was easy. There were many people angry. I don't think people are really accustomed to making four-hour lines. Uh-huh. But in fact, like I was, I couldn't be happier of being vaccinated. I think you gotta remember where you are. In Germany, people are accustomed to four-hour lines. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta remember to put the context. Yeah. Uh, that's great. Our our topic for today is gonna be about vaccine rollout in developing countries and the effect the pandemic has on the developing world. So speaking of vaccinations, what's the vaccinations like in Venezuela, for example? I think the topic is quite important because in Venezuela, the vaccination process has been a total mess. Uh, there has been problem of vaccine selling in the black market. There have been problem of people faking vaccines and only using alcohol in the vaccines. People have died from wow. fake vaccines. So I think talking about the developing world is necessary. I definitely think so. Wow, fake vaccines. Mm-hmm. And is that very common right now in Venezuela? It is not common because not many people have the money to pay for a vaccine because normally they ask you $800 for a vaccine. Wow. But uh, the people that pay and get scammed, uh, it's not just that they get scammed, they just don't get water. They normally get alcohol in their in their, in their vaccine and they die. And so it's quite, quite great. Yeah, I'm not. I'm no medical expert, but I assume if you're getting alcohol pumped into your veins, it's never a good yeah. sign. Uh, I could say, I could say it's not the same in Lebanon, but the vaccination campaign is well on its way. Uh, I found the name to be a bit funny. They named their vaccination campaign "Grab a Jab," and if you <laughs> yeah. want, and if you want your COVID jab, you go to grabajab.com and you book <laughs> your COVID jab in Lebanon. But I'm very excited for our guest here today. We're going to be joined by Patricia Logetto. Patricia is the program manager for Brazil at the Department of Global Pediatric Medicine at the St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. And awesome. Yeah. And she's actually one of our own. She is a Master of Public Policy, uh, Willie Brand School alumna. So that's going to be really exciting. We're going to be talking about one of our very own 
uh, alumni. We're going to be having this discussion. Uh, I'm very excited to ask her all the questions we had about the developing world and how the situation has been dealt with overall. And if or how is the pandemic affecting the developing world? Well, let's not wait anymore. I think I'm really excited for this. So let's go. Awesome. Let's welcome her. Welcome back, everyone, to the Bulletin Podcast. We are very happy to welcome Patricia here with us. Patricia, welcome to the Bulletin. Thank you. Thank you, Hussan. Thank you, Jesus. It's my pleasure to be here. So you're joining us all the way from Brazil. What time is it right now? It is 11.20 a.m. 11.20. Wow. Thank you so much. On a Saturday uh, of all days, you're joining us here. So thank you very, very much. Of course, no, it's my pleasure, and I'm really happy to be chatting with uh, the Willy Brand community. Uh, personally, for me, it was such a great time that I had in there, so I'm happy to remain in contact and joining uh, the events, the opportunities, so it's truly my pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation and for receiving me. Great. With that, I really want to make the most out of our time with you here today and out of your experience, so let me just dive right into it. Uh, so let's start really with a general umbrella question about our topic today. Uh, let me ask you the question that's going to set the agenda for the rest of this talk on how has the pandemic challenged the developing world? Yes, uh, well, in many different ways, um, developing world across the, across the globe. And I think I'll start um, with the ones that, I, uh, that we feel most, I would say. So first of all, of course, the economic crisis um, for many reasons, because of the health issues that we are having, of course, that affect our economy, um, but also the consequences of, the, uh, of our um, measures and what we have to do to fight it. We have seen an increase in poverty uh, in the global south and also in inequality. And when I say inequality, I'm not saying only uh, inside those countries, but also when you compare one country to another. I will start talking about inequality uh, at home, so inside the countries. First, of course, income. Uh, many, many people lost their jobs, were affected by the pandemic. And we see that different workers, different groups were affected um, with uh, different levels of intensity. So we do know that informal workers lost their jobs more often than formal ones did. And the Global South, particularly Latin America, uh, which is the my area uh, that I'm most comfortable with and I would say that I uh, have more expertise on, we know that that is a region that even before the pandemic, the majority of workers were informal and they already started from a point of more vulnerability in terms of uh, their wages, uh, job security, their benefits, and so on. And the fact that they that now they lost their jobs uh, also means that they lost their only source of income and they're not going to be, they don't have the benefits that uh, other counterparts would have. And this means that they then re really rely on social assistance programs from governments and these programs have been gone of course the pandemic has been going for a very long time so these programs also need to support those people and this in turn puts a strain on already in many cases deficitary budgets or very tight budgets that makes uh, the government this government's lives also more difficult we have many companies as well especially the small businesses were impacted and some 
if they could have stand it, close their doors indefinitely and might be able to reopen now, but many, many uh, did not have this uh, matrix, I would say, to survive the pandemic and ended up closing. Of course, business also received, uh, had programs that received aid from governments, but I mean, of course, it was not, it's not the same thing as when you can actually operate and open. And this also impacts jobs, which will impact then people's ability to consume. And we ended up in a circle that really, from my point of view, really would need uh, government help to be able to break and uh, make these businesses, make these people survive past the pandemic. Not only that, but I think also with, with, like businesses in the developing world, it's really hard for the government to fund them. And also we have this uh, this problem of not only the businesses but also the people. Like I, I heard also that uh, gender gender inequality has increased in this during the pandemic. Violence against women, violence against children, right? Yes, very true. So uh, and that was actually an impact from isolation. You, of course, you need to isolate people in order to fight the virus, especially in the beginning when we didn't have vaccines, when we were still learning about how it spread and what could be done about it. But at the same time, some people uh, were put in situations of vulnerability. So the first that you mentioned, of course, gendered violence. So women now who were not, I don't know, going to work or doing their activities outside their house and had to stay home, many times they stayed in a, play, in a toxic place, which was already... Um, toxic even before the pandemic and is only accentuated because they don't see other people who might notice the signs and they don't ha they have less chances to ask for help same thing with children now that they're not going to school uh they have less contact with uh, with so that impacts of course the socialization but also in terms of violence um we i i am afraid on how those levels will raise because usually teachers are the people who identify the signs and um and notice that something's wrong in the household first when they see the children in their classes. And now the most uh, the children are not going to school and most teachers are now at home or teaching online, if at all, if classes were not blocked because they simply could not have this type of uh, online education implemented. Uh, these signs might pass on and, we, and uh, I'm afraid on how these levels might increase on vulnerable people now suffering um, even more. Well, so many things to think about, so many problems to tackle from a pandemic. Because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, it's, it's a medical problem, of course. It's a it's a health problem, but also it branches out into so many things. And I really like that that we talk about Latin America. Being myself from Latin America, and he, there comes my my worry and my question that I, that I wanted to address is, can the developing world Health sectors, health sectors survive this pandemic because money is scarce, beds are scarce, vaccines are scarce by, right now. So uh, how can we can they they survive? Well, truly, I would say they don't really have a choice. Uh, they have to survive. But I do say that we need the one. I think the biggest lessons is that you will not be able to do it alone. So I really think that the best way for um, health sectors and countries to move forward and overcome this pandemic is working together. I, uh, especially because it's a pandemic that don't, doesn't know borders. So even if you have the perfect scheme in your own country and you make to uh, make everything perfect, it's really hard to prevent uh, the virus from outside entering, especially unless you're 
an island that manages to be 100% self-sustainable and doesn't really need anything anything from the outside, which is not the case nowadays in its globalized world. Even the most remote areas have contact, you have trade, um, you have your partner, so that won't work. So you really need to come up with a common strategy, coordinated, going in the same direction. If we go, if one goes right and one goes left, this is not going to work. So the way to go through it, I think, is working together, uh, cooperating, following uh, proper strategies, listening what international organizations have to say, what scient- what the scientist community has to say, and um, and implement the measures needed to go over it. I do think that a couple of changes. I'm sorry, uh, I cut you off. No, no, please go on. Uh-huh. I was ju- just a small comment. I do think that a change we might see now is um, in telemedicine. With the pandemic, um, me- telemedicine really became a good tool to be used. And But I see its uses, of course, even outside this context. So to reach remote areas or to help for workforce capacitation, um, virtual solutions for meetings. Uh, I think you also even had some digital clinical trials. So I do think that um, technology and the virtual world, the pandemic kind of forced us to apply it and really update ourselves. And I do think that that is something that will stay and using it wisely will make things uh, hopefully better and easier in the future. Yeah, I mean, when you talk about islands, I found that a bit a bit comical really because we have seen some islands trying to do that and trying to cut the outside world off but unfortunately that did not uh really work out for them uh which leads me that the topic about islands to our next question here where countries really couldn't stop the spread so we moved on to the next best thing to the next best possible outcome which is now to protect people using vaccines what really prompted this question is, I'm going to be very frank here, it's actually a, a meme I saw on Twitter where people are saying, oh, the pandemic's finally over, but these are people living in first world countries, in developed mm-hmm. countries who are receiving the vaccines, when in reality, the pandemic is far from over mm-hmm. around the world. Um, how can we explain, really, or if we want to talk about the slow rollout of vaccines in the developing world, what can we point that to? Well, uh, I think the main reason is supply. So if we've been having uh, difficulties and for many reasons in uh, bringing these vaccines to the global south and to more low and middle income countries. Uh, even though many countries uh, have made their orders, turning those into really making the vaccine arrive, having the proper uh, supplies to apply them. So it's not only the vaccine, you need to have the whole infrastructure, uh, you need to be able to reach your population, you need to organize the vaccine. That is not simple. Um, so many, many things come uh, in organizing this big vaccinations campaign. I also believe that uh, the politicization of the pandemics played a role. So we have many places uh, fake news, for example, saying the vaccine is not good, that it's going to bring bad uh, consequences to those who take it. This really discourages people um, to vaccine, which is truly sad, um, in my opinion. We also had... Um, for, so, for example, 
we are going to probably see a lot of vaccine diplomacy. So those countries who actually have the vaccines or have the, uh, sorry, what is the word? Uh, the required materials, to, mm-hmm. the, the inputs, sorry, to make them, um, they will you. They might use it. Of course, officially, I don't think I ever saw a country saying that they did uh, targeted their so their uh, delivery and supply of vaccines or inputs based on diplomacy. But I think it's a bit difficult to think that this is not uh, going to take place. I yes, um, I'm thinking. Yeah, I think those are one of the biggest issues. I, I think those are one of the biggest issues. You mentioned demand as one of the main issues, but we've seen countries, big developing countries like the U.S., uh, who have who had surplus of vaccines at one point, who've had vaccines almost reach their expiration date and had to be getting rid of. Do you think there should have been, or there should be, starting now, uh, a regulation of demand, maybe a body uh, that regulate that is regulating the demand of the vaccines? From the producing companies, the demand of the supply. You mean uh, the, the, the supply yeah, and yeah. both okay. the cycle. Uh-huh. Of course, of course. <laughs> of course. Hmm. I do think it's hard that yeah. countries will agree to have someone regulating it. And although I think it is a very delicate question, I I can understand why many countries. Um, bought way more doses than they needed in the beginning or why they invested in many different options when those vaccines were still developing. Um, But I I think it's a bit difficult to force them to take any, to do anything, or it's difficult to to say what they need to do. But I do believe that they need to match their actions to their rhetoric. So many... uh, the G7 and many high-income countries have been saying how it is important to bring more vaccination to the global south, uh, to low-income nations, and how they will either support COVAX or different other types of initiatives to do so. But in reality, they're still not doing it, or this is taking longer uh, than would be ideal. So I don't think we need to have a regulatory body to do that, but they just need to do what they say they will do, because they... They have all the reasons. It's just, um, okay, it's not just, it's difficult. But it's bringing that, putting that into place, I, would, I would say. It's, sometimes it's hard to have so many things. And, and there are many policies, uh, for example, in Latin America, that have uh, shown this uncertainty regarding developing countries and the vaccination, like Chile's early buying of the, of the vaccine or Brazil's policy of, well, let's say nothing happened or, or nothing is happening. And I, this gives me a, a, a really a, a worry that is basically how can the developed world help developing world further? And I know that you say that they need to come make what they put their money in their mouth, how, how we would say they need to put their money in their mouth. But is there any mechanism or any particular way that that could be done? Mm-hmm. Um... I think there is two things we need to think about. So one thing is how we address the current issue that we have right now. So uh, countries facing uh, waves of infections and rising deaths. 
But we also need to think about the future because um, it's very true that we're still finding out how the coronavirus is beha- will behave if we're going to need to vaccinate early or what's going to be the frequency. We also still need to find out about slate effect, about um, post-COVID syndromes. So I think there are two fronts we always need to keep in mind. So how to address what we have now, because of course we cannot ignore it. We cannot lose sight of the future because it's going to bring challenges. And if we only wait to put out the fire once it's already in there is all is always a problem it's more difficult it's more expensive and so on so i think for right now well how is i will start with the present so how could we address um the issues that we are facing now one of the things uh the first point i think Kovacs should try to organize its schedule because um from not mistaken from the last time i saw they were estimating that the dosages would arrive to the countries but more towards the end of the year and i think uh so many lives are going to be lost before that and i ideally we could have is and a second issue is that they will send the, these vaccines uh well not all but a big amount at the same time and this will cause a lot of logistics problems how will these countries absorb these vaccines as we spoke already is not a matter of receiving the vaccine and immunizate someone you have a whole logistics around it uh and countries need time to organize for this and we don't want to have those vaccines arriving and then expiring because you could not organize it because you could not organize um these vaccination programs fast enough so i believe in the first um part would be organizing this schedule so these vaccines could be delivered in less uh in smaller quantities with capacity for up to absorb it. I think that would start helping. And then, of course, would start addressing uh, problems right now. So especially uh, you have many countries, for example, in Africa, in which health professionals are dying because of COVID. And of course, we also saw that, for example, last year, but we didn't have a solution for it last year. And now we have the vaccine. So it's it's truly um, a problem that that could be avoided. And I think we could take action to prevent that. Uh, on a second point, those cu- countries, um, usually those are the high-income countries, which are, for example, um, already vaccinated all their junior population and started to vaccinate people who are outside those groups. I do believe they could donate, make a deal, depends, of course, on each country's situation, and send those vaccines to places in which vulnerable populations are not vaccinated, in which health professionals do not receive a shot, in which... Um, the older population didn't, people with comorbidity. So we could um, realign the supply that we have better to what it is most needed. In the long term, I think countries could help to support a local vaccine production, especially if we're going to have to have those shots yearly or more frequently. Um, We'll reach a point in which we need to produce, let's say, the second batch for when we need to start uh, revaccinating everyone who already did. And if we don't have these local productions, are we going to end in the same moral problem that we have right now? It's not, um, it's not learning from our situation and from our mistakes. And then, of course, it would need to have some evaluation because, of course, not all countries have the capacity to do so. Wouldn't make sense to all countries to have. But I do think if we can spread a bit more vaccine production, that can increase our supply, then can, that can make our distribution easier. Um, it will increase expertise, and from from where I see, I think everyone would benefit from it. 
Yeah, actually, a really funny thought came to me when you talked about vaccine production uh, in the developing countries. Because, for example, in Lebanon, where I'm from, this is a really hot topic right now that they want to build a factory to manufacture uh, COVID vaccines in Lebanon. And that's when everyone went to the meet. Everyone has zero trust of vaccines if they're going to be made in Lebanon. They're like, if they're going to be made here, we don't want them. So it really put a, like kind of a shot in the credibility of the vaccinations. Uh, but I also want to go back to a point you mentioned about fake news uh, earlier. And you said how fake news plays a huge role uh, in people steering away from the vaccine. Do you think this has a bigger effect in the developing world than the developed world, more specifically? Hmm. I wouldn't know. It w- I What I say is we need to be uh, investigated. Yeah. But I guess mainly because my anecdotal experience is from uh, Global South. So I, I, I don't feel comfortable in comparing how that plays out in uh, more higher income countries. But I see... Yes, I think I see many people refusing because they they don't believe in it. Um, not only in the credibility of whatever the vaccine was produced, but in the vaccine in itself. And as you said, in Brazil, there's some some still question the virus, the disease itself. Um, I still don't know how, considering how many people lost their lives to it. You, I don't know if there's someone in Brazil who doesn't know either lost someone to the disease or knows someone who did so. So how can you deny the gravity and the need to act and do something about it? Um, I don't know. It's, for me, it's truly, truly sad. It's I guess this, this is a great segue to, our, to one of our questions here, which is about the Brazilian experience. Uh, so you have been living in the Brazilian experience for a while now. You have seen it from start to the end. What can you tell us about that? And what are the specific things about the Brazilian experience that really make it stand out from other experiences when it comes to COVID? Oh, one of the things I believe is how, as I mentioned, even in face of so much evidence, we still don't have a change in direction. And here I'm talking about um, health authorities, because of course uh, it is... It is crisis communication. It's basic crisis communication. You need to have a coordinated response. You need to uh, talk to people. You need to be transparent to them. You need to control uh, the fear. You need to prevent panic. And it's something that really I at least don't see that happening. Uh, it is very and what what happens is a very uncoordinated response. So, for example, uh, the federal government says something that you have some governors or state and city level authorities saying something else and as a population how do you know who to trust if you receive so many conflicting messages and a lot of goes and comes back so okay today we are in the red level and the next week we're not anymore but truly nothing changed if you look at if you look at the situation in brazil we really never had different waves because we never went back from the first one. We just kept surfing on it. And it <laughs> might be sometimes upper, sometimes down, but you don't see the movement that you saw, for example, in Europe, in which you have clear peaks followed by um, diminishing. Uh, we, we never saw that. Uh, I cannot say that no other country ever saw it, but from the ones that you hear, well, at least that I hear most often in the news, Brazil is one of the few who face it, this situation. 
So basically um, the narrative of being in the curve up or in the curve down is just that, a narrative. It's not a matter of fact in Brazil. It's that we always been up, but in order to create this, this picture of, oh, getting better, getting worse, keep people on the edge, the Brazilian government has made these different statements. I don't even know if their goal is to keep people on the edge or if they're just unsure what's going on. Um, <laughs> do you think? <laughs> <that's>, do you, <laughs> but is that what you really think? You think that they actually don't know what's going on? Because that's interesting. Because that says a lot about populist regimes and crisis mm -hmm. management, which is a hot topic right now at the Brand School, where just next week we have presentations <laughs> on different uh, crisis management policies. So... Do you really think they just have no idea what's going on? They just want to maintain the populism they have built over the years? Uh, I th when I say, like, really not an idea, it's like how one point affects the other. Of course, they know we have a pandemic, that things are bad, but they just didn't prioritize it, in my opinion, as they should have. So they put emphasis for in the wrong thing. So one of the main models were how was how our economy could not stop because of it and how we needed to keep um, the country moving forward but i think the fallacy of this argument is that you need healthy people you need to control your health crisis to be able to grow economically because basically what happened is that we have been in a crisis since forever because nothing was ever done and when you look at other countries who actually had uh, lockdowns measures properly done, uh, not like we did that was more or less done it properly. They are recovering and they are moving forward. And I wonder if we had done that from the beginning, wouldn't we be better than where we are right now? Uh, so that's what I mean in the sense, yes, in the sense, I don't know if it was just a wrong bet that they thought, okay, we will be able, this is not going to be so serious. We'll be able to move forward and let's go. Or they thought there was no connection between the two of them and... Yes, yes. I personally don't like to think that was intentional. I really dislike this type of talk because I think it's very pessimistic. And but I, but this is the type of thing we will see. We have investigations going on right now about the conduct of the federal and state governments during the pandemic, and we will we are learning new things every day. And then we'll be and I hope by the end of it we'll be able to I'll be able to answer your question more to say what actually happened because I'm still wondering. Um, how did we get here uh, when <laughs> we had extent, yes like when we had like we will have we will be always there in that expectation of what will what happened and what will happen yes a bit especially when i see i mean we had so many people telling us what to do how couldn't we <laughs> follow it <That's... laughs> so I'm, I'm waiting to see why uh, i cannot answer yet i'm also looking forward to this answer <laughs> um so really to go to our final question here, uh, to go back to the meme I discussed, do you think we are closer to the end? Oof. Uh, I think it depends what we consider the end. I do hope now with vaccines if we manage to overcome all the difficulties we just spoke. I do hope we'll finish the moment that we have right now, that we have... Um, rising infections, so many deaths and um, overburden of our health system. So that I do hope we'll be able to reach it to an end. Now, if we are ever going to see, for example, the extermination of the coronavirus, we're never going to see that anymore. 
I'm a bit more septic about it. Um, septic, sorry. Uh, I did see some uh, comments from the WHO that the, there is a chance that the virus will become endemic. So we'll be, we will learn how to deal with it. We're going to control it better. Uh, but it's not that we'll be able to completely forget that it exists. My hope is that in the future, I don't know, the future generations will see it the way we look at, um, I don't know, those diseases and vaccines that we take when we are young and we never think about them again because that has been taken care of. I hope, or maybe that we need to take it every year if that comes to it, but that is not a worry, something that we keep in mind, that we know we have to deal with, but it's not as life-threatening and uh, dis- disruptive as it is right now. That truly really is my hope, although... Um, it is hard to say. Uh, we need, I guess we're going to need to uh, see how things develop. If we talk about to an end to the consequences of the pandemic, oof, those I think we're going to see for a very long time. So the ones we spoke. And I also think that the differences in recovery, so the way some countries are already, as you mentioned, in some places life is going back to normal. So some countries are recovering while others are still suffering with it. This is going to cause a, a big difference between these countries, uh, how they recover, how or to their population, also to the mindset of the population. So imagine if you're in Brazil, it's had, it has been what? If you truly adapt, adhere to it, it has been a year and a half, almost two years that you cannot leave your house, that you can only really go for specific places. You're always very worried about contamination. Uh, this, this leaves a mark in the way that you behave. So it's really weird when you might take off your mask uh, in the future if we ever be able to do so. Um, Still hoping for yeah. that. Yes, I'm hoping for that too. But it, I wonder how weird that will feel when you're like, oh, okay, I can't leave my mask. At, like I can't forget my mask at home. No, <laughs> uh, right now that's completely unthinkable. <laughs> I guess for now, mask up, <laughs> keep your yes. social distance, follow all the rules. Patricia, thank you very, very much for joining us here today. We have taken a little bit more of your time than we had planned, but the conversation was flowing so nicely. So thank you very, very much for having this conversation with us. No, I thank you. And don't worry, it was a pleasure. I also had a lot of fun. So I hope I didn't take too much of your time with these extra minutes we, take, we took here. It was very enjoyable. Thank you very much. Thank you. Wow, that was a very interesting interview. What did you think? I think that policy advisors have a really hard time and really hard job, and we need to appreciate that more, especially during a vaccine rollout. I do think so. And one thing that gets me thinking every time after after we do an episode with the guest is all the different facets of the topic that we just did not think of before. Like when you talk about when you talk about someone who's an expert in the topic, they start bringing up so many different layers uh, of the subject that we really not ignored, but just did not know existed before, did not make the connections in our head, which I find really interesting. Yeah, I think that, and, and that's a, I think that's one of the main things that they taught us in our classes that, well, this is social, social sciences that you need to get accustomed to complexity. And not, I think nothing is more complex than a global pandemic that, uh, that uh, engulfs all parts of life. Right. Let me put you on the spot here and ask you a question that I asked our guest earlier. Jesus, sure. what do you think about the populist leaders and their, the way they're handling the COVID pandemic? 
I think like one key mesh key thing of populism is that everything is a possibility for campaigning and everything <laughs> is a possibility for creating a narrative. And that has not been the exception with the vaccine. I think that many populist leaders have taken advantage of the vaccine and the pandemic to try to create a narrative that benefits them, even though it's not coherent, even though it doesn't help for public policy. And that's sad. That's right, but that's also one of the one of the characteristic of a populist leader, so to say. So would they really be populist if they didn't do that? Exactly, it's like betraying themselves. <laughs> With that, we have reached an end of today's episode. A few quick announcements we need to make. Do not forget to sign up for the Brand School Farewell Ceremony happening on the 16th of July uh, at Café Nerli. It's going to be a great time. We have so many surprises waiting for everyone. So feel free to sign up. Jesus, did you sign up yet? Of course. I want to say goodbye to our great second year students to see them grow. <laughs> Perfect. Another quick announcement. Do not forget to hand in your nominations uh, for our farewell ceremony uh, awards that we're going to do. We have so many categories, so many interesting categories, and that's only for the second year. Uh, for you to nominate your friends to win these awesome awards that we've created. So it's going to be a bunch of fun. Please do not forget to do it. We're counting on you. And with that, thank you very much for tuning in. See you on the next one. See ya. Bye-bye.